Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Bits of Gold, episode 132. Today's episode is all about how to break through barriers and not accept limits. Welcome back to another episode of the Bits of Gold podcast. If you are new to the Bits of Gold, first off, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Second, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Now let's get to it. Randy Pausch, the author of the last lecture, wrote, The brick walls are there for a reason. The brick walls are not there to keep us out. The brick walls are there to give us a chance to show how badly we want something. Because the brick walls are there to stop the people who don't want it badly enough. They're there to stop the other people. What do you do in your life when you find yourself in front of a brick wall? Do you break through? On today's episode, that is exactly what we will be discussing. How to break through barriers and not accept self-limiting beliefs. Today my guest is Beshoi Tadros. Beshoi was born in Egypt and his family immigrated to the U.S. when he was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. He grew up in Long Island, New York, where he received treatment for 10 years. On his 13th birthday, Beshoy underwent brain surgery and remains cancer-free. Outside of his career as an account executive at Salesforce, Beshoy is passionate about health and fitness. He is an Ironman and a six-time marathoner. Beyond completing as a participant, Beshoy has led charitable campaigns for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, raising over $100,000 since 2017. In 2019, Beshoy added author to his list of accolades with the debut of his self-published memoir, Break Barriers. He wrote his book with the objective of giving readers a tool to channel the mindset to overcome obstacles, whether they be personal, professional, or on the playing field. And that's exactly what we're diving into on this episode today. And now let's welcome Beshoy to the show. Beshoy, welcome to the Bits of Gold podcast. Maybe just to kick this one off, you could tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, and we'll go from there. Thank you for having me. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, my name is Beshoy Tadros. I am better known for this book right here, Break Barriers, How Setbacks Can Dare You Rather Than Define You. It's a memoir slash motivational piece that I had published back in 2019. It was based on my own personal narrative, which I had not publicly shared until I was almost 30 years old in 2017. The story goes that I was born in Egypt. I was diagnosed with leukemia at a very young age, and my parents immigrated for me to get treatment. You know, they left everything that they knew. Honestly, they were unsure if they would come back, and they were in their mid-20s at the time. Anyway, I had a longer uh, treatment period than probably expected. So between the ages of 3 and 13, I was undergoing various bouts of treatment. When I was 13, I had brain surgery to remove a golf ball sized mass from my right frontal lobe. And then after that, I got a a clean bill of health. It was at that point that I had assumed the mantra of quote unquote, break barriers, I had decided that anything that you had put in front of me at that point, I was going to figure out a way to overcome. And so that's the summary of how the story started. I'm sure we'll dive into a lot more and, and kind of what happened from there. But here we are today. Let's go backwards. So you get this diagnosis at a really young age, you said you were three years old, correct? Your parents, they packed their bags and said, we're leaving so you could see better doctors. Take us through that a little bit. So I got the diagnosis at a very young age. It was 1990 at the time. The medical capabilities in Egypt at the time just weren't up to par. And my dad did have a medical background and 
he understood that given the diagnoses that chances of survival were going to be pretty low unless they did something drastic. My mother, of course, she was in her mid-20s and telling her she'd have to leave her family. And literally everything that she knew was, was a little bit tough, but it was a no-brainer in terms of survival. So they packed their bags. My mom was actually seven or eight months pregnant at the time with my sister. And we landed in California where I started treatment at the City of Hope. Did treatment there for about a year. And then we moved to Long Island where I finished treatment at the North Shore Hospital System there. Um, and I got my brain surgery at NYU. It's crazy because it's so easy for people to get stuck in the mud of their own life and so focused on what I'm going to do next or where I want to get to. To hear your parents literally pack their bags and leave home and come here, it's remarkable to hear that. Obviously, you know, it's it's for family, it's for you, for their son, but that's of like great magnitude, picking up your entire life as you know it and, and moving halfway across the world. Yeah, I mean, the truth of the matter is they are the real heroes of the story. If it had not been for them making that decision and, and kind of taking that chance and picking things up, I mean, when they got here, they had to figure it all out from scratch. Thankfully, they had a little bit of a network that was able to get them started. But when you think about it in terms of, you know, navigating the healthcare system, insurance, finances, et cetera, I mean, it's not like they had it all figured out when they got on the plane. So, you know, it was a lot of figuring it out as they went along. What was that like for you as a kid? Did you have the awareness of what was going on or you're, you're so young at that point? I was definitely too young around the time of the diagnoses, but I do have, a, you know, some memories that I touch on and break barriers with regards to my time in California. I was about four years old. And one of the things that I'll never forget was receiving a spinal tap. It was one of the most, probably the most painful experience I've had in my entire life. You know, I'll never forget being in that room as a four-year-old child, kind of thinking to myself, like, why aren't there any other children here? Why am I the only, you know, four-year-old amongst my peers that's in this room? Like, what did I do to deserve this? Obviously, I didn't understand the depth of the prognosis. I just knew that I was in a room with a doctor sticking a needle up my back. And, you know, I was incurring this pain that I went back and started talking to my friends about. No one would really understand because no one else gets spinal taps. So I, I have memories like that. And then I do have memories of seeing several doctors throughout my childhood. But the thing that really stuck out and that I, you know, kind of hone in on and, and where the foundation of the Break Barriers mantra was between the ages of three and 13, no matter what I did, whether it was physically, socially, emotionally, culturally, nothing clicked. You know, I just didn't fit in because I was going through something that most of my peers couldn't fathom. It was through that experience that I had kind of gained this perspective. I had grown up really quick as a child, not even as like a teenager. And so by the time I had got that clean bill of health as a 13 year old, I probably was thinking like a you know 19 or 20 year old at that point because of everything that I had gone through. And I remember going into high school and I remember thinking to myself like, okay, in order to succeed, it's going to involve failing. It's going to involve falling down and getting back up. And that's going to be across all aspects of life. That's going to involve making friends. That's going to involve playing sports. You know, the story goes that I, I got cut three times from a team that doesn't really cut anybody. I definitely stumbled a bunch making friends, especially early on in high school. But I knew going in that that was going to be what it involved. And I kept that in my mind the whole time. I feel like I came out stronger for it because it, it turned out to be true. By training myself to get through rejection, to get through failure, to get through being told you can't, ultimately gave me the strength that when I was an adult, the rejections of adulthood were, were a lot easier to handle. I think kind of gave me a little bit of an edge. So while, you know, you can think of my childhood as the period where it was easy to look at it and maybe feel bad for me, the truth of the matter is, I think all of that really just strengthened me for the rest of my life.
you know, obviously when you're faced with adversity, you can turn a lot of different directions. You can push it away and say, life has it against me. Life's so unfair. On the other hand, you know, you, you could take it as you took it as an opportunity to grow in the face of adversity. And I know that that's a process, right? It's not just like you can snap your fingers and make that choice. But why do you think that's the direction that you ultimately went? And how did you actually go about making that conscious decision? My parents did a really good job in terms of helping me take on the mindset that I was given this burden, if you will, because I was built to handle it. And although on the outside and even, you know, myself looking in the mirror at the time, it was hard to believe that I was the person that was built to handle this kind of trial. But they did a really good job of just shoving it down my brain where I ended up taking that and embracing that mindset for anything that I wanted to do after that, where it was like anything life throws at you, it's thrown at you because you were built to handle it. And the truth of the matter is, when you think about it, is we all have our own ups and downs. But at the end of the day, there are still people out there who will take your deck of cards and figure out a way to win win with them. You know, no matter how bad you think your circumstance is, someone else will take it because there is someone out there who has it worse than you do. And that really helped me shaping that perspective of don't worry about what the picture looks like on the outside because the majority of people may not be able to relate to what you're currently going through. But take your story and make it your own and understand that you were decked because you were built to handle it. When you were in the hospital and you were navigating your cancer diagnosis, what was that like? Obviously, a lot goes through your mind when you're given a diagnosis like that, especially at such a young age. What was that like for you? So for me, it was a little different because I didn't understand too much until I was older around the actual severity of the prognoses. My parents did a really good job of sheltering me throughout the process. They knew, the people around them knew, but I was too young to really kind of understand it. What I did understand, though, was that I was seeing a lot more doctors than a lot of other people. I was getting a lot more needles than a lot of other people. I had a feeding tube. I have a scar right here in the center of my chest where I had a feeding tube. No one else had a feeding tube. I couldn't swim because of this feeding tube while all the other kids could swim. I also, as a child, because of all the chemo and the radiation, I was a lot slower. And so that's where I felt it most. And that's actually what kind of translated into adulthood is that I kept being told, for instance, you were last on the suicide lines, you know, and in order to be on the basketball team, you got to run quicker. For me as a kid, there was no understanding as to why I couldn't run quicker. I'm like all the other boys, like I want it like everybody else, like, you know, I'm doing all the right things. I'm the first person there, last person out on the court, and it didn't matter. And for me, that's kind of where I felt it most was in those areas where I just wanted to be like everybody else, but I knew something was wrong. And at the time, if you had tried to tell me that the reason I was slow was because of some medicine that I was taking or because of chemotherapy, I was too young to process it. When you wake up today with clean bill of health, how does that feel? And do you like remember the day that you were given the clean bill of health? It was at 13 years old. Yeah, I, was, I had brain surgery actually on my 13th birthday. It was coincidental. Wow. So I had brain surgery on my 13th birthday at the time because of my medical background. I was in the hospital for a couple of weeks and the doctors had all pretty much said it, there was a brain tumor inside my head. They were pretty convinced about it. Anyway, they did the surgery. And then after they did surgery, they investigated and it ended up being what's called a venous hemangioma. And it was benign but it was a golf ball sized mass just pressing against the front of my head. And after that, I kind of had this moment and, and I talk about how being in the recovery room post brain surgery is one of the most traumatic experiences someone can go through because your brain is so sensitive. So when you come out of that surgery, they basically wrap up your entire body. They don't want any part of your body moving. Your whole body is swollen and you're in some pretty horrible pain. And I remember 
being in so much pain and agony. And I was in the pediatric ICU and there was a child next to me who was having a seizure. I remember having this really dark thought of it's either going to be him or me because like there's no way like even the noise hurt just hearing him go through his suffering was putting a lot of pain on me because of all the swelling that I was going through. And so I kind of had this dark moment of like fight or flight survival in terms of like it's either him or me. And it was a really dark moment for a 13 year old to have. But after that was done, I kind of realized that I had gone to a place that no one, I, you know, my parents hadn't, didn't know what that was like. And no one around me knew what that was like. And after kind of being in that kind of place, you just make a promise to yourself that you never want to go back. It's crazy hearing you talk about this. How do you start getting into these ultra races and marathons? When does that come about in your life and how? Yeah. So, you know, like I said, my athletic journey in childhood was a little bit rough, but I powered through after I made that commitment to myself when I got to high school to kind of just accept that it's going to be a tough road. And I talk about it in Break Barriers, how eventually I made that team that I had, you know, I've been fighting and get on for a couple of years. And so that was one step of my, my athletic career. Then went to college, struggled with regards to, you know, maintaining my overall athleticism after that, because I didn't really have the foundation that a lot of kids had, because again, you know, I wasn't able to play at the level of discipline that a lot of other students were. So I had to kind of figure it out on my own. Anyway, I get into my mid 20s. I'm in the city at that point. I'm working in banking. I had started going to a friend's spin studio. It's called Swerve Fitness. And they opened it up with a different concept than a lot of other spin studios at the time. And this was, let's call it maybe 10 years ago. And the theme of the spin studio was that it was team-based spinning. So you were basically going in, you were riding with 15, 20 strangers, and you were competing against two other teams within the room. And one thing that I kind of noticed around me was a lot of the people in there were former athletes, a couple of D1 athletes, people that, you know, grew up competing their entire lives. And I realized while, while I was in there that I was actually able to keep up with them. And I didn't know how and I didn't know why, but I kind of made this agreement with myself that I'm just going to continue to surround myself with these people and just be quiet and soak in and understand exactly what it is that they do on a daily basis to keep themselves in the shape that they keep them in and to kind of stay mentally focused and really to build themselves. So I was doing that for a while. And then I got to know these people. And ultimately, one of them had helped, you know, encourage me to sign up for my first half marathon at the time. That was one of the scarier things that I had signed up for. And I was training for a while. And I got through that in 2015, I believe. And then a month later, I was working at the bank and a client of mine based in Denver said, hey, like we're hosting the Denver half marathon. Would you like a ticket for it? And I thought that after that first half marathon, I wasn't going to be running another one. But I was like, all right, I guess. So then there I am in Denver a month later running through the altitude. That's different. Yeah. Now I have two half marathons under my belt in two years. And I'm like, oh, like maybe maybe this is something that I'll do. And I kind of got the bug. So now I'm doing these smaller races. That same group of people that I had first surrounded myself by, they started dipping into the triathlon circuit. You know, I was like, whatever, like, let's do it. So I signed up for my first sprint triathlon. So a very small race um, out on Long Island. And I didn't like swimming that much. I wasn't a good swimmer. I didn't really have much upper body strength, to be honest. I never got in the weight room growing up. And that was something that kind of stood out when I compared myself to other athletes. Made it through that triathlon. All of a sudden, we're going through the circuit, do another one, an Olympic. And then all of a sudden, they're like, hey, like we're thinking about doing a 70.3, a half Ironman. And I kind of had this like, not really sure this is something that I want to get myself into. But I remember that promise I made to myself when I first met this group of people. And it was, you know, I'm just going to soak it in and I'm going to do my best to emulate them. It's going to be scary. It's going to be hard. But the only way that I'm going to grow is if I put myself outside of my comfort zone. 
what was the intrigue or like just to continue doing these things? Because a lot of people see any sort of endurance event, even a half marathon and say, oh, I'll never do that in my life. The intrigue of doing it is you realize after you go through the event, you learn about yourself in ways that throughout your life, you can't really compare because other experiences in life, you learn from them. But sometimes like, you know, they take years to kind of process. But if you run, for instance, a half marathon for the first time, you'll learn a lot about yourself in an hour and a half, two hours. And so you're kind of getting these quick doses of knowledge on yourself. And it's all positive growth. I mean, it, it all just kind of fuels the growth mindset. And I think all throughout my life, and especially kind of spurred by my childhood, I realized the importance of having that edge. So I, I got that edge when I was younger by going through what I went through from a medical perspective. I realized how much it helped me in my adulthood. Now that I'm in my adulthood, I continue to strive for that edge. And it all seemed digestible up until I signed up for this half Ironman. So now here I am, sign up for this race, I pay the money, I'm thinking to myself, there's no way that I'm going to survive this. And it was December 2018. I made a conscious decision to shut everything down at that point. I was working out twice a day. I wasn't drinking. My social life was pretty much cut off. You know, I'd see my family as much as I could. But even when I saw them, my mom, I remember at the time, she was kind of pressing at me. She's like, you know, like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? I was single at the time. So just, you know, a mom being a mom, you know, not really sure. She was kind of concerned that I had devoted my life to endurance sports. And, you know, I just threw away the idea of settling down. The one thing that was consistent throughout that period is people kept asking me, why are you doing this? The truth of the matter is I didn't have an answer for them. And so I got to race day. It was June in 2017. It was 93 degrees outside. Where'd you do it? In Maryland. Okay. There was a New York City bike tour the same week. And I had ordered a bike for the race. They had sent me a hybrid instead of a road bike. So for anyone out there that's kind of not familiar with the bikes and, and the triathlon circuit, a hybrid, it's like getting like a beat up minivan when you had ordered a sports car, essentially. I didn't know enough to let it really bother me at the time because, you know, again, I wasn't a seasoned triathlete. I definitely wasn't an Ironman at that point. I get on the race, get on the course. I get in the water. It's a 1.2 mile swim, half with the current, half against the current. Like I said, swimming wasn't my strong suit, but I ended up getting out in an okay time, very average time. Now I'm hopping on the bike. I always say I like hot weather, but I guess I've never run a 70.3 in, in 93 degree heat with a hybrid. So I'm about 40 miles into this race. At this point, everyone had flown past me. There was no more idea of like any meeting a certain time or anything like that. There was no idea of proving to myself that, you know, I could do this for the long haul. I had realized that I was kind of pedaling away in what felt like quicksand on this bike, this abhorrent bike that at this point it was just survival. So mile 40, I completely broke down and I looked down, there's salt all over my skin. I'm completely dehydrated. There's absolutely no one around me. I was about to turn 30 years old and I joke around about how, you know, I was about to just call my mom and tell her like, hey, like, get me out of here. And I had this moment that I hadn't really ever experienced to date. It was extremely dark, but I remember I summoned in my mind for the very first time in my adult life, my childhood. I said to myself, if I can get through what I went through back then, I can finish the last 30 miles of this race. I said to myself, I need to apply the same fundamentals that got me through that to get me through the last 30 miles. And I remembered a few different tidbits. And it's funny where your mind goes when you're that desperate. And for instance, I remembered as a child that my parents rem reminded me to celebrate small wins. And there I was 
with 30 miles ahead of me and I decided, okay, instead of running 30 miles, I'm going to run one mile 30 times and I'm going to celebrate every mile. And so I broke down the race into one mile spurts from there on and I literally celebrated after every single mile for the last 30 miles of the race. That moment was really special for me and it was a turning point and an inflection point really for my life since then. So I get through the finish line and I kind of have this, holy shit, like if I can do that, I can do just about anything kind of realization because the truth of the matter is when I was in the pit at mile 40, I didn't know. I didn't know what was going to happen at that point. I didn't know if I was going to walk off the course. I didn't know if I was going to deem myself a failure and I, I didn't know if I was ever going to be able to kind of recoup because like I said, up until that point, everyone is asking me, why are you doing this? I didn't have an answer for them. And there I am at mile 40. And I'm asking myself, like, how the hell did you end up here? Why did you do this? And <laughs> I still didn't have an answer for it. And I didn't have that answer until I crossed that finish line. What was it like the last quarter of a mile? Like you could see the finish line in, in sight. It was crazy. It was absolutely insane because I started to realize that realization, essentially, that I can't be stopped. I literally cannot be stopped with anything that I put my mind to. And then it kind of, it carried on with me ever since then. But it was just the beginning of that evolution. And I wonder to myself now that we're talking about it is like, do people realize that they can use their mind to will themselves in some of the most dire of circumstances? Do people understand that we have it within to kind of summon that next level? Because I didn't know that about two hours prior when I was in the pit, but I started to realize that. And once you realize that, there's no turning back. So that last quarter mile is kind of like where it started to kind of dawn on me that like, oh my God. And then crossing the finish line, it was more like sealing the deal around like, all right, here we go. Life is about to change. You can do this. Yeah, it's crazy. Endurance races are crazy in that sense because it's unlike any other sport in the sense where you know, if you play basketball or baseball or tennis, you might be losing, you might be down, but like you're not at this point of complete depletion where you're just at the tank is on zero and you have nothing left. And, you know, like you said, you start to feel and question like, how am I going to be able to actually finish this thing? How am I going to be able to persevere and move forward? And you know the mission, you know the task at hand, but it seems or feels so like insurmountable. And then obviously, you know, you, you get on the other side of that and you realize that, wow, like I am capable of so much more than I thought. I think that's one of the beautiful things about endurance events. And I think what personally is the draw for me, because you don't experience that in any other team sport or really any other sport for that matter, where you go to that lowest low and at the end, you realize that you have so much more in the tank. No, absolutely. I mean, I always tell people. Anyone can run a marathon. You know, I know we're not talking about marathons right now. It's just a good basis kind of when you think about endurance sports. Any human being can run a marathon. And undoubtedly, after going through that process, you'll never be the same again. What came next after the half Ironman? So I, I crossed that finish line. In the back of my mind, I had been toying with the idea of running my very first marathon that same year, being that I lived in New York City and, and kind of grew up around here, I wanted to run the New York City Marathon. And so I started doing my research and I realized in order to run the New York City Marathon, I was going to have to fundraise money for charity in order to get my race bib. And so I said to myself, I just got an edge on that course that, you know, I got to do something with it. I'm still a human, so I was still very vulnerable. I wrote down my story on a piece of paper. I had decided to fundraise money for the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. I thought it would just make sense given my prior diagnosis. 
I looked at my story and it got me pretty emotional because I had never shared it publicly before. And I was worried that if I had put it out there and it was the story that got me through that mile 40 moment, that moment where I kind of transcended time and current Bashoy, I was worried that if I didn't get any donations that ultimately that, that moment meant nothing. I wasn't going to be able to bear with that because that moment was way too powerful for me personally, given the span of my life. And so I sat on it and I thought to myself, okay, I'm just going to pay the fundraising out of pocket. A couple of weeks later, um, I was at the office and I had started building up a relationship with a managing director at JP Morgan who struck me as being someone who I can kind of take my relationship a little bit further than just, you know, the confines of the office and, and just try to test the bounds of what would this person be like as a personal mentor. So I uh, asked him if he would take a look at my piece of paper and he looked at it. He looked at me and then he laughed and, and I'm like, why, why are you laughing? And he goes, he goes, your fundraising goal is just $3,000. I go, yeah, that, that's how much I got to raise. He goes, Bishoy, you need to make your goal $100,000. And he gave me a $1,000 donation and he said, go. And that was it. And the light kind of switched from there. And I said to myself, oh my God. So I had titled my story, the comeback is always greater than the setback. And instead of on that paper, just kind of giving a biographical timeline of events, you know, saying when I was young, I was diagnosed with cancer and my parents immigrated, etc. I literally poured out my heart and talked about the lessons that I had learned along this journey, what it meant to me. And that $1,000 quickly turned into five, turned into 10, turned into 30. And then I got a call through my network from someone at NASDAQ who said, hey, we got a hold of your story. Would you like to come ring the closing bell? So now I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, like I almost never shared this story. Five months later, I was at mile 40, you know, breaking down myself. And now this story has gone viral, raised a lot of money for charity. And here I am being asked to come and, you know, talk on a public platform, let alone in front of the entire world. And so it was crazy how quick things had happened. So there I was, I showed up that day, we rang the closing bell at NASDAQ. And then a couple of days later, my very first marathon through New York. And it was absolutely exhilarating, the process. I mean, my head was spinning during that first race because I had felt a newfound responsibility now that I had kind of laid the land for this platform that was based on my entire life that I had hidden for 30 years. And that's really how that started. Yeah, it sounds like you found that why that you were missing when you first did the half marathon and then the half Ironman. I always talk about the three P's in anything that I do. And those were the lessons that I had learned growing up. And I already talked about patience as something that I had summoned during the half Ironman. The other two are perspective and purpose. And purpose was something that I had realized once I crossed that finish line to your point. And, and that was my why. And the thing that I always tell people is you want to find out what you were built to do in this world, do things that are completely outside your comfort zone, do things that make you uncomfortable to the point where you think you might not make it out. And then all of a sudden, it becomes very clear what you're here to do. So for me, it became very clear at mile 40 that I'm here to help other people channel the mindset to overcome their own obstacles. For me, it took the pits of that mile 40 moment to get there. But I think a lot of people avoid putting themselves in situations where perhaps they could have their very own mile 40. Because once you're given that moment, as painful as it is and as dark as it could get, life completely changes after that. Do you look back on when you first set the fundraising goal as the bare minimum of 3000 When I hear you say that and when I, when I know what you accomplish after, both obviously even before in, in the half Ironman alone, $3,000 is the bare minimum. You need to raise that to run the race through that organization. When you look back, obviously, then you were like playing small in that instance. And then you set this goal to be far bigger and today much bigger. 
what was the key takeaway of playing small in that moment? And I feel a lot of people fall victim to that in their own life where we sort of set these confines or these boundaries in our life where we accept that playing small is is what's possible. And that's kind of, you know, what we have this mindset, this fixed mindset of, okay, I'm going to do this and this seems reasonable. But sometimes you have to be a little bit unreasonable with your expectation or your goal to even break that barrier alone. No, I mean, that's something that that mentor had indirectly taught me, but that I needed to hear. Aim high, aim high always. We are built to perhaps underestimate our own capabilities. And honestly, who cares if you don't hit $100,000? But the truth of the matter is you sold yourself short if you go in aiming for just $3,000. He taught me that. Sometimes we know it, but we just need to hear it. The truth of the matter is I knew I had a story that I felt could be impactful, but I was vulnerable like every other human being out there. I wasn't unbreakable. And even to this day, I'm not unbreakable, but I just needed someone around me to just say, hey, like, I believe in you. And that's really all it takes. It kind of is a message that I think is very important for everybody out there to kind of understand is be that person for other people. Be that person who tells the others around them who are unsure that like, hey, like, I believe in you. Like, I believe in your purpose. I believe in your story. I believe in what you're doing to shine a light because that little ounce of belief could ignite a flame that perhaps they had kind of dimmed because they were looking for that ignition. And that was me. I had my light just kind of like really, really low on fuel because the whole time it was just me carrying it and unsure that it was going to impact anyone. But all it took was one person saying like, here's some gasoline. Like, let me just give it to you so that way we can kind of get this moving. And that's essentially how it happened. It took one person to kind of move it around and to kind of start the journey with the New York City Marathon. That's amazing. Race day, first marathon you do, what was that like? So just like anything else, when you do your first one, you don't really know what you're getting into. And a lot of people thought, oh, like he did a half Ironman. He could definitely do a marathon. The truth is they're completely different when it comes to training. (laughs) And the 26 miles of pounding on your feet is tough because, you know, during an Ironman, you're transitioning from a swim to a bike to a run. You have different muscles being impacted. With a marathon, you're essentially just pounding on the same muscles the entire time. For me, that first race was also kind of tough to manage because emotionally, I was just going through so much. I literally went from having my own personal awakening to all of a sudden carrying a platform for a story that was raising a lot of money that got some national press. I was featured during the uh, telecast of the 2017 marathon. So uh, ABC, their headline reporter, Amy Freeze, was running alongside me for a while and I was getting interviewed during the marathon and it was really cool. But from a runner's perspective, it was a lot to manage because I had to pace myself to meet the ABC telecast crew. Again, because it was my first marathon, it was tough for me to kind of maintain my emotions and pace myself. It definitely wasn't a race that I was going to be running for time at that point. I was going to be running it more for the experience. It was painful. And, you know, now I've run six marathons and I've run four New York. This last one was my fourth New York. And it's crazy because I can finally like look at people and say like, now I understand the course. But that first time around, it was more around just soaking in the experience and staying focused on the mission at hand. How does the book come about? So I come out of Marathon Weekend in 2017. And then I go through this kind of like dark lull. Because when you think about it, from June to November, a period of about five months, my life turned upside down, you know, in terms of what I had learned about myself and the impact that I saw that I could have. And now 
the marathon was over and the fundraising was over and I had thought to myself, okay, like, what is my purpose now? Like, I, I thought like I had no purpose at that point because, you know, I was just going back to work like everybody else. I remember that Monday going back to work and thinking, oh boy, here we go. We're like everybody else now. And not too long after that, I got a call from somebody else who was overseeing events at, a, at another bank and they were like, hey, you know, we saw your story. We'd like to invite you to come in and speak to our people and talk about translating the success of fundraising to succeeding in a sales organization. So I was kind of like, huh? Like, so someone was going to pay me money to go speak <laughs> to other professionals about me, about my story. Like, I couldn't really believe that was happening. Then it was like, all right, that's really, really cool. And I was super nervous. And it's crazy because it's, it's your story. No one knows it. Like, no one can tell it. Like you can tell it. At the same time, I was still kind of like fumbling through my words, telling my own story because they couldn't have called me out on anything. They didn't, you know, they didn't know. Yeah. So anyway, I did that. And then I was like, that was really cool. And it kind of led me to believe like, okay, like there's a way to take this one step further. So another year went by and I had always toyed with the idea of writing a book. I had zero literary background. I had no idea what I was doing. At the time, my wife and I, we were dating. It was the second time. We dated three times in total. This was the second time we dated. We broke up. I remember when we were dating that time around, I was kind of telling her, I'm like, yeah, like I want to write a book. And as that part of our relationship was on the way out the door, I remember she kind of said to me, she's like, she's like, you keep talking about writing this book, like write this damn book, you know, like kind of just do it. So we broke up and I'm like, all right, well, now I have some time. So uh, <laughs> I'm sitting at my desk at the bank and my boss was in Houston at the time and I had a lot of autonomy. I really knew my job inside and out. So I could like my work days were not that difficult at the time. So I Googled how to write a book. And then I also Googled how many words you need to write to hit 100 pages, just because I thought 100 pages was like a respectable amount of pages. So it was 20,000 words. So now I'm bringing in my laptop every day. I'm taking these lunch breaks and every day I'm just typing away. And three months later, I, I hit this kind of 100 page milestone that I had set for myself. And it was just a very long Word document. And I didn't know what to do with it. So I had actually reached out to my friend, the CEO of Swerve, the, the spin studio that I had been going to at the time. And I said, hey, man, like he went to Harvard. So I was like, you've got to know someone who's published. And he did. So he connected me with his friend who looked at my, my document. He's like, oh, this is pretty good. Can I give you my editor? So he gave me his editor. Again, I had no idea how much it would cost. I had no idea what it took. I didn't know anything about the logistics. I didn't know how to print a cover out. I didn't even nothing. Fortunately for me, the editor was, you know, the right person for me. And he taught me everything along the way. And six months later, we had a final piece and we released it September 2019. So the book took me nine months to essentially Google, write, edit, and publish, which is really, really fast. But I was hellbent at that point on getting it together because I wanted to keep the mission alive, especially after having that lull after the marathon of like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I said to myself, I'm going to put this out there. And it, honestly, if it only impacts one person, if one person picks up this book and, you know, is able to kind of look at my journey, draw a parallel and use it to identify a means to channel a mindset to overcome their own obstacle. It's all I wanted. And I wrote it in a way where I didn't want it to be geared toward just cancer patients. I didn't want it to be geared toward just marathon runners. I wrote it in a way where I wanted anyone who picked it up to realize that we are all unified by the fact that we all have our own obstacles. And this is meant to be a guide to help you overcome your own obstacles. That's amazing. That seems like a very fast turnaround to get a book from idea to the physical print. 
It was. And most people are shocked when I tell them how quick it went. But it was a short time frame, but I was going at it all day long. My editor and I would have calls until two, three in the morning, literally going page by page, every single sentence, every single word, kind of just picking and, and kind of making sure that the story was fully authentic. And it was my story and that I had the final kind of signature on it. What wildly held belief around setbacks and personal obstacles do you reject? It's okay to, to rest. I mean, one of a recent, recent guests that I had on my own podcast, he kind of implemented this quote of rest if you must, but don't quit. I want people to realize that just because you want to break down a barrier, overcome an obstacle, doesn't necessarily mean you need to bulldoze it. There are other ways to break barriers. And going back to the three Ps, which are the formula in my mind, patience is one of the most important ones. And that was instilled in me when I was younger, because going through what I went through, I got a lot of bad news for doctors, for instance. It taught me that you're not always going to get the results you want when you want them. And so when it comes again to overcoming obstacles, you may not break down that wall or that barrier right away, and you might not bulldoze it. But if you click at it a little bit every day over time, you'll be able to overcome that obstacle. And I think that's one of the most important things to kind of keep in mind when it comes to the notion of breaking barriers. It sounds like I'm running around breaking down walls day after day. And that's not the truth. The truth of the matter is that I'm chipping away every single day and I'm, I'm going at it, understanding that I need to be patient with regards to seeing the results that I want to see. I would say that that's one of the main takeaways. And so give credit to James McMillian for kind of instilling it in me. But that idea of like resting if you must is OK, but don't quit. Just kind of go at it and be patient. I love that. What do you see for yourself in the future? Do you have new bigger goals that you've set? I'm curious, what do you want to accomplish in the next one year, three years, five years? Do you have a vision of that? So for me, what I've learned is like, instead of kind of setting these milestones, I do have ambition and it all goes back to that whole idea of don't sell yourself short and dream big and aim high. I never thought I was going to write a book. We figured that out. I didn't think I was going to sell a book and the book has sold. And then, as you know, the story goes the same with the podcast. So I have a podcast out there called Mile 40 based on the Mile 40 moment. And at the time, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. And the joke was I recorded my second episode and then I got a package in the mail from a listener, an anonymous listener who sent me a new microphone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that goes to show you like I'm learning as I go. I'm not going to call this a goal with a, a timeline. I am currently working on writing a screenplay. And so that's something that I'm, I'm working on and I'm, I'm not setting any hard goals, but it's similar. I've never written a screenplay before. I've never done this before, but it, it's something that I'm kind of putting in front of myself as a natural next step to building the platform. But how I kind of hold myself accountable has nothing to do with crossing finish lines, financial goals, or meeting certain numbers. It's really around, am I impacting people in a more amplified way tomorrow than I am today? And that's really how I hold myself accountable. Am I doing a better job of being a person with a platform? a better husband, a better father, a better friend, a better son, better colleague. So long as I'm doing that, then I feel like those other things will come into play. The finish lines will continue to come. The platform will continue to build. I always look at you know the financial gain as being the most natural byproduct of all that coming together. I love that. Where can people connect with you, find you, follow you, buy the book? 
Yeah, sure. So the book is available on Amazon, as well as my own personal website. It's also available in Kindle and Audible format. Like I said, I do have the Mile 40 podcast that's available on all major podcast platforms. You can also find me on Instagram at Bishoy Tadros, be able to find me pretty easily and on LinkedIn and YouTube. YouTube is actually a place where I'm, I'm putting a lot of my work these days. Awesome. Well, Bashoy, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Danny. It was an honor being here. I really love the message that you're putting forward, and I feel very fortunate to be a part of it. Thank you. Likewise. All links for this episode can be found in the show notes. One of my favorite bits of gold from this episode was the importance of stretching outside of your comfort zone in order to grow. It's so easy to get in the habit of staying in your comfort zone. One way I found helpful to break this habit is to try one thing new every single month. The other day, I just tried jujitsu for the first time, and being a beginner at anything is super uncomfortable. In that instance, I didn't know anyone, I don't have any skills, I possess zero talents, and it's a great way to build the habit of reaching beyond where you are comfortable. Going to the mats that day, going to jujitsu was super uncomfortable. I didn't know anyone, I didn't know anything, but by the end, I felt great, and I felt proud of myself for breaking free out of my own comfort zone and trying something new. So I encourage you to do the same. Let me know how it goes. I want to hear from you. Shoot me a message on Instagram at DanLevGoldberg or at the Bits of Gold podcast. Finally, if you can, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts as it really helps with growing the show. That's all for today. Thanks for living with purpose today and every day, and I'll see you next time. I love your podcast. This is gold. This is where it's at. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.